This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, you are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Kat Arney, and with Ben Velsler. Hello. We have shipped Chris off to Australia for the week for Crimes Against Fashion, so it's just us. Anyway, this week we're bringing you the highlights from the Cambridge Science Festival. We'll find out about the hands-on activities at the festival, including making a necklace from your own DNA and even building a brain. Absolutely fascinating. We'll also be hearing about the future of space tourism from the president of Virgin Galactic himself. We'll be exploring the science of Doctor Who and finding out why skateboards are great for teaching physics and escaping from your physics teacher. Plus, we'll be hearing out uh, hearing why chimps on TV could be harming their cousins in the wild. And contrary to popular wisdom, we'll find out how massive meteor impacts may actually do more good than harm. What else have we got, Ben? Uh, well, we've got Diana O'Carroll live in the studio again for another one of your questions of the week. When I was looking at the Times, I thought, how do they get it so accurate? It says something like, Wells Bar, low tide... 1402. The question was really, how did they get it accurate like that? And who needs it that accurate? Because I certainly don't. Well, neither do I, I must admit, but you can find out how and why they get the Tide Times minute perfect later on. And we've also got a great kitchen science that I did with Dave at the festival, and he shows me how you can turn a vacuum cleaner into a bazooka. It's great stuff. And we'd like to say a big hello to all the people listening in Second Life. Hello! We're really glad to have people with us in the virtual world. And that's all to come on today's Naked Scientist, so if you want to get in touch with your questions, comments, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at the science news from this week. Now, many people assume that meteors hitting the planet only spell disaster for us. Uh, for example, we've heard about the massive meteor strike 65 million years ago that's widely believed to have done for the dinosaurs. But scientists at the Natural History Museum of Denmark are now suggesting that, in fact, the opposite may be true and that meteor strikes may, in fact, be beneficial for biodiversity and for the development of animal life. Now, paleontologists... Oh, paleontologists Svent Stooge and Dave Harper have been studying the so-called Ordovician period. That's around 490 to 440 million years ago. And that's a time when the Earth was battered by more than 100 massive meteorites at one time. Now, surprisingly, the researchers found that after an initial negative impact on life, new and more varied species evolved in the oceans, which at that time were home to virtually all the life on Earth. And the researchers think that the strikes gave evolution a serious boost in a relatively short period of time. 
Writing in the journal uh, Nature Geoscience, the researchers were studying meteorite craters in Sweden, such as this big Lockney crater, and that's got a diameter of more than seven kilometres. Now, at the moment, their findings only apply to the region around the Baltic Sea that they've been studying, but they found some meteorite holes in southern China that look the same. They've got the same chemical composition as those that they looked at in Sweden. Now, the team planned to study these craters, meteorite uh, strikes in China and the USA, to find out whether this is actually a global phenomenon and whether it does have implications for the entire history of evolution. That's incredible. I assume it's because the meteor strikes, it wipes out a big chunk, and so there are lots of species around who can take advantage of the new habitat. Exactly. It seems to just be a big upheaval that creates new opportunities. Ah. Well, this is a completely different story on a completely different scale, but have you ever bought milk in in your shop only to get it home and discover that it's gone off by the time you get back? No, but it's happened to cheese. Oh, cheese. I've had it. Goat's cheese. I had it happen with some salad dressing that actually exploded as I was unpacking the shopping. Awful stuff. But actually, there's a new device that's been invented that could stop spoiled food from ever leaving the supermarket. Now, if food isn't properly refrigerated, the amount of bacteria in it will increase, and that could mean that the food will go off and, and either be wasted, or it, if it's something called Staphylococcus aureus, it could actually give you food poisoning. Mm, nasty. Nobody wants that, of course. Now, Craig Grimes at Pennsylvania State University and Quingun Kai at Hunan University have developed a novel device which lets you know if a sealed food packet like a milk carton um, could contain harmful bacteria and they do this by sticking a widget in there and so with this widget the infected milk shouldn't make it off the shelves. How does it work? Well the thing is that I think of widgets as being something that you put into beer to make make sure it has the right head but what they actually do is they put a strip of iron, nickel, molybdenum and boron alloy Now, that sounds like something you wouldn't really want in your food, but what it actually does is vibrate when it's in a magnetic field. And the vibrations then create their own distinctive magnetic fields. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you can do, if it's in fresh, non-infected milk, you put it in a magnetic field and that makes it vibrate. And then you can measure the new magnetic field that the vibrations create. So sort of the resonance of it. Yes, and the vibration will be different in infected milk because it's a bit thinner. Oh, yeah. You see, because the bacteria has broken it down, it's caused the milk to decompose, and so it makes it vibrate faster. So if you just put this little device in a magnetic field, you can read off the speed of the vibration, and you could put these at every till in every supermarket, and every carton could have one in, which would mean that potentially poisonous food would never make it off the shelves. So just go, bip, wee, 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 or something Exactly, like. and you <laughs> know... This milk's off. Yeah, and you know that that one's spoilt, it shouldn't be sold. Genius. Uh, another completely different story uh, here. Researchers at the University of Utah have made a discovery that could lead to treatments for two of the leading causes of blindness in the Western world. Now that's age-related macular degeneration, which is very common in older people, and a disease called diabetic retinopathy, which is very common in people with diabetes. Both of these are expected to rise in the future, partly as our population ages, and also as the number of people with diabetes increases. Now these diseases cause problems in our eyes by making blood vessels grow abnormally, and these new blood vessels are a bit disorganised. They're, they're very weak and they tend to leak. So that kind of causes a lot of problems. Now, the team found that eye damage caused by both of these diseases could be prevented and even reversed simply by switching on a protein called Robo4, which uh, doesn't actually stand for sort of robot. It, it actually stands for roundabout. Uh, it was originally discovered to be involved in nerve generation. But it's also been implicated in angiogenesis. This is the process by which our body grows new blood vessels. Now, previously, researchers have found that Robo4 can stop the growth of new blood vessels and stabilise them. It sort of matures them. So this prevents uncontrolled growth of blood vessels. And experiments uh, in mice, the scientists found that activating Robo4 could actually stop blood vessels from growing abnormally and stabilise them, preventing this leakage. And that could improve the symptoms of the diseases. So that was great. Um, they think their discovery could you know, pave the way for new treatments that might switch on Robo4, so looking for drugs or something like that, maybe gene therapy that will activate it. And this could be potentially very powerful treatments for blindness. But there are other implications that are even bigger. For example, in SARS, the, uh, the kind of the, the flu that we hear about, this kills people when the infection destabilises the blood vessels in your lungs, allowing fluid to leak into your lungs. So could we activate Robo4 and stop this? 
And in cancer, tumours hijack blood vessels to provide them with nutrients and oxygen. So maybe there's some kind of role for Robo4 here as well. That Very sounds interesting. really promising. I'd heard before that one of the big things with cancer is if we can work out how it gives itself a blood supply and stop that process, then that would really help us in the fight against cancer. Exactly. There's a lot of researchers who are really looking into that. And I know some people at Cancer Research UK are doing that. The one problem is, is that the size at which cancers grow a blood supply is absolutely tiny. It's about the size of a grain of sugar. So you have a, this trying to balance up how can we detect cancers early enough to stop this happening. So more now, researchers are just looking at ways of cutting off that blood supply or destabilising it, or in fact, actually stabilising it more so that chemotherapy drugs can penetrate right into the middle of tumours. Oh, fantastic stuff. Well, do you remember seeing chimpanzees on TV drinking cups of tea? Oh, yeah. Now, I don't Pushing know if... pianos downstairs and things like that. Exactly, nice flat caps on. I don't know if this was worldwide, but we certainly had it in the UK quite a lot. And it seems that seeing chimpanzees on TV and in adverts and films could be misleading the public into thinking that chimps are doing really well, when actually the reality is really different. Now, for 45 years, chimps have been seen advertising tea and they've been advertising beer, careers advice, and they were even used in a promotional campaign by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They're the people who put forward Science magazine. Now, to be fair to them, they halted the campaign as soon as somebody complained. But uh, the inappropriate portrayal of great apes in advertisements undermines the scientific welfare and conservation goals that we and many readers work hard to achieve, was something that said by Stephen Ross and his colleagues, including the famous Jane Goodall, and they wrote in something called Policy Forum in Science, so obviously science were taking this message very seriously. Now, what they did was ask visitors at two primate centres, that's the Regenstein Centre for African Apes at the Lincoln Park Zoo and the Great Ape Trust of Iowa, to fill in a survey about their attitudes towards apes. Now, 95% and 91% of respondents thought gorillas and orangutans were endangered, and that's right, they are, they're very seriously endangered. Um, But only 66% recognised that chimpanzees are endangered. Now, that may just be because... Chimpanzees seem to be more prevalent. They you just may not realise how threatened they are. And we do hear very often that gorillas and orangutans are threatened. But actually, when they were asked to explain their choice in a follow-up survey, a third of the people said that the reason why they thought they were very prevalent is because they're commonly seen on television, advertisements and movies, and therefore must not be in jeopardy. But the sad truth is that chimpanzees are endangered in the wild, and uh, the current estimates suggest that the wild populations could be extinct within the next few decades. Oh, and where will we get those chimps to star on our TV adverts Well, from? exactly. It's terribly sad. Now, finally in our news section, um, we're going to speak to Dr Keith Sockman from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Now, for years, scientists have assumed that the first born of any batch of offspring has a better chance of survival Um, out in the wild this may not necessarily be true in humans Uh, but this definitely applies to birds and it seems that the first laid egg might do better than its siblings but dr keith's found out that although this still seems to be true the first laid egg actually has a harder time in getting to hatch in the first place and he's here to speak to us now hello 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 um tell us a bit about what you've been looking at what sort of birds have you been studying The birds I study are called Lincoln sparrows, and I study them at a high elevation site in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And how how does their life cycle work? If a a female bird's going to lay some eggs and hatch them, what's she up to? Well, as in most bird species, the female will lay one egg per day until the clutch is complete at usually four eggs, but sometimes three or five. And then during that laying period, usually a few days into it, she will begin incubating those eggs. And incubation will progress for typically 12 days or so, at which point they'll hatch, and she'll raise those young for another 10 days or so before they are big enough to fledge, that is to leave the nest, and gradually gain independence. So we've got eggs being laid every single day, so some are older than others. Um, What did you find when you were studying these eggs? Right. Well, everybody is familiar with the concept of the runt of the litter or the runt of the brood, as you already alluded to. From mammals to even beetles, and especially in birds, the youngest sibling in a group of siblings or nestlings in the case of birds is typically the smallest, because it's the youngest, 
and therefore the least competitive in that nest and the least likely to survive, whereas the oldest is typically the largest and the most likely to survive. But what I found in the Lincoln Sparrow is that although indeed the oldest is typically the biggest and most likely to survive, the competition between its sibling nestlings for food, it is actually the first produced young, that is the oldest, that is least likely to hatch from the egg at all. So there seems to be this trade-off that's mediated by this effect of production order or ovulation order that in one case maximizes the survival probability of the nestling, but at the same time minimizes the survival probability of the embryo. So you have the the older eggs may not hatch at all. Why do you think this happens? Well, uh, my hypothesis is that it relates to the fact that I mentioned earlier, and that is that the female does not begin incubating those eggs right from the start. So that first laid egg will typically sit in the nest for a few days often before she begins incubation in earnest. And as a consequence, that egg is exposed to ambient temperatures. During that time, it can accumulate harmful bacteria and fungi that can penetrate the shell, we presume, and compromise the viability of the embryo. So presumably you're going to end up with maybe fewer eggs actually hatching, but they're more of the same age. Well, we think that this behavior of the females, that is to start incubating after uh, not right away, in other words, um, it kind of balances uh, a series of trade-offs she faces, one being how many eggs can she lay before the probability that one uh, is exposed to ambient temperatures for too long and therefore its survival being compromised. So it sort of swings and roundabouts. Yes. Basically. Do you think this is happening with any other bird species out there? Uh, I would, I would certainly think so. Um, I think... This hasn't been looked at very closely, so we don't know for sure uh, how widespread it is. But I have no reason to think that the Lincoln sparrows that I study are very much different at all from many other small songbirds. Anyway, thank you very much for speaking to us. That's Dr. Keith Sockman from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you for joining the Naked Scientists. Thank you. Now, still to come on the show, we're going to be taking holidays in space. Well, we could do. Uh, Mir has been speaking to the president of Virgin Galactic, who sincerely hopes that we can. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat, and with Ben Valsler. And we've got a couple of questions here, actually, Kat. So the first one is from Freddie, and I'm afraid I can't pronounce your surname, Freddie, but you'll know who you are because of your question. And he says, Hi, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. I'm a regular podcast listener on the way to work, and my question is about an experience that many people might want to try it out at home. Just take a seat in an office chair and spin around for maybe about 30 seconds. Why does that make you feel sick? Oh, I think this is all to do with your vestibular system, if that's the right word. I'm sure Chris will pick me up on this from Australia if I'm wrong. But basically, inside your ears, you have a system of interconnecting tubes that are all at right angles to each other, so in in each plane, up, down and left and right, that are filled with fluid. And when they tell you which way is up and, you know, which way is left and right in your head... Uh, So you know if you're standing up, if you're lying down. If you spin round very fast, the fluid in these canals will spin round. If you stop very suddenly, as in stopping an office chair, you stop, but the fluid in your ears is still going. Uh, So your brain gets all confused as to uh, you think you're still spinning, but your eyes are telling you that you're not spinning. So basically you just manifest as feeling very sick. And isn't this the same reason why people feel sick in long car journeys and so on? 
Exactly. It's when you get an imbalance between what your ears are telling your brain and what your eyes are telling your brain. So you, you get confused and that, that basically makes you feel nauseous. Lovely. Well, I'm lucky that I don't get car sick. Um, and, uh, but my wife does, actually, oh, I which do. is it's awful. I, I'm, so I'm pleased that I don't. But now we're very pleased to bring you uh, from the Cambridge Science Festival. We've got Nikki Buckley with us. Hi, Nikki. Hello. <laughs> now, it's been an extremely busy weekend for you. Um, I was uh, at the festival yesterday covering some of the events but there was so much to see that it would have taken an army of us to get around it all how long does it take to set up something like this so we think about it all year it does take 12 months really to plan each festival and then when it gets into the week or two beforehand we're working really long hours just to get it all uh, sorted and it, it, but it's fantastic when it all comes together <laughs> well we'll shortly be finding out what carol vorderman's personal favorite bits were but what's been your highlights so far i know we've still got a few things to come mm. but so far what have been your your best bits I really enjoyed uh, Bjorn the Polar Bear yesterday who came to visit us part of National Science Week and uh, he's a life-size, animatronically controlled polar bear and his handler does a show about why polar bears are under threat from global warming, their habitats are, are d disappearing and the children uh, asked fantastic questions um, and they came up with great uh, answers to why they could actually uh, have an impact on tackling global warming. And so they were thinking about, you know, better putting on a jumper in the house instead of turning the heating up. So I was really pleased with that. Excellent. Well, it seems that there was quite a lot there that did um, both inspire the kids, but also, I think, quite terrify them, because I know that there were some fairly scary monsters around as well. That's right. There were some uh, Doctor Who monsters. There were some ouds. There were some... Uh, I don't know all the words for them, actually, <laughs> but uh, I didn't like the look of a lot of them. And uh, that was kind of lighthearted, but it certainly created this fun, like, carnival atmosphere yesterday and uh, made it uh, a really enjoyable experience for people. It definitely seemed to attract a lot of people. The mm. cues for the Doctor Who things were, were huge, but also the cues for the, the pure science talks mm. were, were really big as well. Mm. How successful has the festival been so far? Well, we think there were probably 15,000 people at five sites yesterday for the festival, which was great. Uh, probably another 4,000 today at physics and the uh, vet school. So these are just great numbers for us, and, and we've seen people of all ages uh, really enjoying themselves. Cool. Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and it is a great deal of fun. But you can't only do this because it's fun. Is there a, a real drive behind the Science Festival? That's right. We are really keen to encourage uh, school pupils to take science further at school, to think about doing it at university, to think about careers in science, see the relevance of it to everyone's life, and then to engage with adults as well who may not have studied science for years, but actually have questions to do with their health or the environment where scientists you know, can help answer those. Excellent. Well, I'm pleased to hear it. And what do you have planned for next year? Because surely the festival isn't over, but you must be getting the wheels in motion for next year already. That's right. Next year, it's the University of Cambridge's 800th anniversary. Now, they haven't really been doing science necessarily for 800 years, but they've been doing science for quite a few centuries. So uh, the theme next year may be something along the lines of centuries of science and uh, we'll be looking back to the past, but also looking to the future next year. Fantastic. And I guess you'll have some of your returning favourites as well. Oh, yes, we will. We've, we've built up a great network of supporters and great acts for the festival so uh, i'm sure you'll see some of your your old favorites come back fantastic well thank you ever so much for joining us nikki we've got loads of highlights from the show coming up in fact still to come we hear about the real life sonic screwdrivers and how it could be possible to make a tardis i'm not sure i believe that but apparently physically it can so uh, there we go Yes, and if you want to get in touch, if you've been to the Science Festival, want to tell us what you saw there, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And now it's time to hear some highlights from Science Saturday. We sent Mira Senthalingham off to roam around the hands-on activities in the biology zones right in the centre of Cambridge, and here's what she found. I've come along to the pathology department on the Downing site. I'm here with Christine Watson, who works here in pathology. Hello, Christine. Hello. What have you got going on in your section? Uh, well, this morning we're showing people how cells make milk. We're very interested in the mammary gland and how that goes wrong in cancer. But in order to do that, we need to understand normal mammary function. And so today we have an exhibit on breast cells and how they make milk. We have lots of interactive exhibits for the kids to look at different animals and how much milk they might make. And to come and look at all the different things in milk and look at the fats and the protein and the sugars and all these things. And how are you displaying this? How is it interactive? Uh, we have lots of posters and we have uh, Guess How Much Milk, a mechanical fax machine here, so the kids can put balls in the machine and study how we separate cells to determine their different functions. So you have everyone guessing how much milk these animals make, but I can actually see some milk and cheese down the end there. What's that for? 
Well, we thought it would be really exciting for people to taste different sorts of milk and realise how the flavour is actually made. So some animals make a lot of fat in the milk and some have much more sugar. And so we have milks to try here. We've goat's milk and cow's milk. And we even have milk from a plant, from soya milk, which <laughs> some people drink because they don't like animal milk. And so there's lots of things to try and taste. And so what are you hoping they walk away with having come to this section? I hope they'll they'll go away with an understanding of actually how exciting it is to study science and also to have some idea of how uh, the mammary gland actually makes milk. I think lots of people don't understand how cells make milk. And how do cells make milk? Ah, well, during pregnancy, very special cells called ovular cells grow and these cells can then make protein and lipid and they then secrete that into the ducts in the gland and then when the infant suckles at at the teat, they can actually withdraw that milk. And these cells all die at the end of lactation when they're not needed anymore. And is it these cells that go wrong in cancer or is it a variety of cells? It's usually these kind of cells that go wrong in cancer. So if they don't die properly, then women can get cancer. In fact, dogs and other mammals can get cancer too. So we're really very interested in finding out how we can kill these cells if they go wrong. So I've wandered over to the new museum site and I'm here with festival patron Carol Vorderman. Hello, Carol. Hello. So what have you been doing this morning? Well, I was over uh, near Plant Sciences earlier on and um, seeing lots of people dressed up as bees and then getting lost in a very large uh, yellow flower. Then I was uh, getting my DNA extracted, shaken up in a little test tube along with various chemicals. Were you able to take it home with you? uh, Yes, you are. You can make it into a little necklace on your own test tube and take it home. How fantastic is that? And then I went to see um, the lecture about the science of Doctor Who, which was, oh, man, it's real. (laughs) I've come over to the biology zone, and it's extremely busy. There are hundreds of people queuing up outside just to come in. There's a whole variety of activities going on. Now, over in the distance, I can see children bashing a machine of some form with quite a lot of force, so I'm just going to go and see what that activity is about. It's the Neuroni section, and I'm here with Isabel, who's organising this particular area. Hello, Isabel. Hello. So, um, why are children bashing that machine over there? Actually, they're trying to get uh, their motor coordination as better as they can. So, they're pressing one button to the next one for 45 seconds, and we're just recording how much they, they do. We're using these tests in the clinic. These are used in the diagnostic for patients with Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease. What else have you got going on in this section? Actually, in this section we have building a brain in Play-Doh. We try to sensitize people to uh, what is brain science. And the idea is, is to sensitize kids to how complex the brain can be by making them uh, make a brain in 10 steps. So the person that's actually created the build a brain section is Dr. Lizzie Burns from the University of Oxford. Hello, Lizzie. Hello. So um, what's, what's that section all about? The idea is to sort of inspire and engage people with the brain, which is, I think, the most fascinating organ in our body. It's really what makes us who we are. It's where everything that we experience is happening, all our memories. It's extraordinary to think that a strange wrinkled thing is responsible for all those feelings. So it's also about trying to appreciate how beautiful it is. The real thing doesn't look very beautiful, it has to be said, but it is beautiful in terms of what it does. So people are actually able to sort of find out about what's inside their brain. There's loads of things in there as well, and what each part does, what would happen if those parts weren't working as well, what effect that would have on the person. So I've actually run this sort of workshop for very young children who love it, all the way up to real leading neuroscientists in their field and they've loved it too so everyone turns into an instant child it's wonderful so i've come over to the brain section and i'm here with sam who's currently in the middle of making a brain hello sam hello so what have you been doing here um i've been making a brain there's this like instruction thing and it tells you all the parts of the brain and you have to make them in a certain order and each one's a different color And which stage are you at now? I'm on the last stage. Oh, okay. so your brain's nearly there. Oh, actually, I can see it. It's very impressive. So what have you learnt new today? I've learnt, like, which part controls which bit. The front part that I'm making now controls the personality. The top part controls the movement and touch. And the sides control um, vision. Um, and the stem controls um, like your breathing and your heart. 
Oh, it sounds like an absolutely fantastic way to learn about how your brain works, as well as creating a lovely sculpture for your mantelpiece. And that was Mira reporting from the Cambridge Science Festival's Biology Zones. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and so far we've heard about some of the highlights from Science Saturday. But the festival has actually been running all week. And earlier this week, Mira met up with Duncan Law Green and Will Whitehorn to discuss the future of the tourism industry. The mission? My summer holiday. Destination? Outer space. Think I'm joking? The way commercial space travel is developing, this could soon be a reality. As part of the Cambridge Science Festival... Two scientists working in this field came to town to tell us about the possibility that by 2010, regular members of the public, well, members of the public with $200,000 to spare, could be spending their annual leave in space. I went along to the event, and the first speaker was Duncan Law Green from the University of Leicester. I spoke to him afterwards, and he told me more about the concept of space tourism. Space tourism is developing new and cheaper ways of getting into space that reach the point where a large fraction of the population can actually afford to travel into space. How many people have done this as tourists to date? To date, five have paid in the region of 20 to $30 million each for Sawyer's trips to the International Space Station. What projects are in development at the moment to make this more common and you know, more frequent for people? We can break them into two groups, suborbital and orbital. Suborbital is where the spacecraft travels sufficiently high to reach the edge of space, 100 kilometres above the, the surface of the Earth, but it isn't going sufficiently fast to reach orbit, so it's going less than about 17,000 miles an hour. The major projects for suborbital are Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, uh, there's a project by EADS Astrium, and there's a small-scale project by Armadillo Aerospace, which is owned by John Carmack, who developed the Doom and Quake video games. What challenges are the designers of these projects facing? Well, the major issue is safety. Current manned orbital spacecraft have a risk of fatal accident of around 1 in 70. So they want to make it at least 100 times safer than that, which gets you around the level of safety of the first generation of commercial airliners in the 1930s. And the challenges there are to have a robust airframe, really safe propulsion systems, make sure that the rocket engine starts when it should, each time, every time. It doesn't detonate in any way, it doesn't fail in any way, so that's the real challenge. There must be environmental impacts of these developments. There's a number of possible environmental impacts. Uh, You have to consider the carbon dioxide emissions, the carbon footprint, possibility for toxic chemical release, because a lot of these rocket systems may use dangerous chemicals, you need to handle them, disturbance to nearby wildlife, uh, sonic booms and, and their effects on the locality the risk of dropping debris on nearby population. The US Environmental Protection Agency is very careful about that and makes all the spaceport developers go through a very long process that they have to justify all this, they have to account for all the possible risks and make sure that the spaceport will be safe and have a minimal environmental impact. What's the future of this and what further developments will there be? The next step after Spaceship 2 is probably a long-distance point-to-point suborbital vehicle that would take you, say, from London to Sydney in an hour. So you'd be flying several thousand miles an hour up above the atmosphere and curve up in an arc and then come back down at Sydney. The ability to view our beautiful Earth from high above and see kangaroos all within an hour. Who could want more? Well, one person that thinks we're capable of even more is Will Whitehorn, president of Virgin Galactic. He also spoke at the event and told me more about the aims of his company. Essentially, Virgin Galactic is going to be an operator of a space launch system. Our first operation is going to be taking people into space who've paid up to $200,000 to go. But we have a longer-term industrial application that we want to use the space launch system for. So we want to be an operator who also carries cargo into space in the future, science experiments into space, and we want the ability to use this system with its very low environmental impact and very low cost to launch low-Earth orbit satellites as well. How do your designs and the materials you use, how are they better than what's already used and how are they better for the environment? For a start, they're not metal, so they're very, very light. Carbon composite is a very light material, so you use very little energy to get it up into the atmosphere. 
The aircraft that we're developing, for example, is the world's first really true all-carbon composite plane, and it burns hardly any fuel. And it can let get the spaceship well above the atmosphere, to the top of the, above the tropopause, up to about 50,000 feet before it even fires a rocket. It then needs to be a much smaller rocket than it would need from the ground. The rocket itself is, has benign materials in it, rubber and nitrous oxide, so it causes very little environmental impact. As a result of that, it's also low cost. You can pretty much say that anything that costs a lot of money in transportation is using more energy and having a bigger environmental impact. So every time the shuttle takes off, for example, each shuttle launch costs about $750 million and has the same impact and output as nearly the whole population of New York for a week. Whereas this system is going to have about the same environmental impact as a business class ticket from London to New York on a normal aeroplane. So it really is revolutionary in terms of the energy it uses in getting to space. And how does it actually work? So how does it fly differently? One of the things this does in space is instead of trying to re-enter the atmosphere like the shuttle does and fly a flight profile and land on the atmosphere in effect, it changes shape in space into a shuttlecock and drops into the atmosphere and then at 50,000 feet changes into a glider and without using energy, any energy at all, simply glides back down to the airport. So it's a very simple system, but it's a very unique technology because nobody had ever thought of changing the shape in space of the vehicle to allow it to get into the atmosphere more easily. And um, how far into space are you going to take people? So what will the actual experience involve? The experience in total for people will be about two and a half hours. They'll fly up to 50,000 feet, they'll be launched in the rocket, they'll go into space, they'll see the beauty of the planet, they'll experience weightlessness and be able to move around in the cabin they'll be able to then come back into the Earth's atmosphere. So they will get a pretty comprehensive experience with about three days' training for it before they fly. I have to admit, I thought the experience might last a bit longer than two and a half hours. But either way, the notion that we could all one day experience what the astronauts do is truly out of this world. That was Will Whitehorn, president of Virgin Galactic, and before him, Duncan Law Green from Leicester University, talking to Mira about the future of space tourism. Wow, I want to do it. I want to go up to space. I'll probably get travel sick, though. Anyway, one person who doesn't need Virgin Galactic's help to get out into space is Doctor Who. First broadcast in 1963, Doctor Who's been capturing the imagination for decades. But is it all just fiction? Dr Paul Parsons thinks not, as Ben found out. I'm here at the Science Festival with Dr Paul Parsons, author of The Science of Doctor Who. Now, is there really any science in Doctor Who, or is it more fiction? Well, actually, there's a surprising amount of science in Doctor Who, not just the obvious topics like regeneration and space flight and things like that. You know, there are actual real sonic screwdrivers being used in modern factories. There are protective shields for tanks that are being developed which can dissolve projectiles just like the Daleks did back in the first relaunch series. There's all kinds of things going on. And I was just staggered when I started ringing up scientists and finding out this kind of thing, you know, because I thought it was going to be quite a limited amount of stuff that I could talk about. I was literally blown away by how much there is out there. So if we're using sonic screwdrivers now, is that a case of art influencing science? I don't think they were already in action when we started including them in science fiction. They probably didn't result from science fiction. You know, I think this is just something that people have developed. I mean, I say sonic screwdrivers, they're kind of sonic tools. They use sound energy for soldering electrical components in place and that kind of thing. Uh, And you can use them for cutting fabrics and that sort of stuff, you know, these little sonic beams. To actually make something with as much oomph as the Doctor's sonic screwdriver would probably be a lot harder, you know. Back in the old series, he kind of blows up landmines with the sonic screwdriver from a distance of about 20 metres. Getting something powerful enough to do that, he'd probably need a nuclear generator, which is more than Tom Baker could probably fit in his pockets. So probably a little way to go until you can have a real practical sonic screwdriver like we see in Doctor Who. But, you know, the basic sorts of things are being used. Yeah, sure. And surely the laws of physics don't let us have something like a TARDIS where it's actually bigger inside than it is on the outside. It's something you can do in principle, actually. Um, There was a guy back in the late 90s came up with a way of arranging this special kind of material. He calls it exotic matter because it's actually got negative pressure, which means that if you blow up your car tyres with the stuff, they actually get flatter, which is quite bizarre in itself. This chap, Chris Vandenbroek at the University of Cardiff, figured out a way of arranging exotic matter in just the right way that it would actually bend space and time uh, into this bubble, which was actually bigger inside than it was on the outside. The trouble is you'd need probably about 10 million billion kilograms of exotic matter to do this, which is about the size of a medium-sized asteroid. So it's not something we're going to do anytime soon, but it's possible in principle. 
So if these things were to be possible, what would be the one thing from Doctor Who that you would like to see in common use? Oh, that's interesting. Um, hmm. Well, time travel would be good, but it's probably maybe a bit obvious. Um, so maybe one thing that I'd like... There was an episode of Doctor Who called uh, Nightmare in Eden where there was this machine which was kind of like a virtual safari park where it could, like, capture locations from all around the universe and then project them, but project them as a hologram so you could actually go in and walk around. So you could visit places virtually, if you like, and um, without having to get on planes and pollute the environment and all that kind of thing. So I think I'd have one of them. It does sound like a very good way to cut down on your carbon footprint. Absolutely, yeah. See, Doctor Who even had the carbon footprint licked. How clever is that? Also at the Science Festival is the editor of Materials Today, Jonathan Wood. Now, what have geckos, spiders, sharks and daffodils got to do with materials? <laughs> uh, well, I thought that was a good question too. But it turns out that all of those things have come up with amazing engineering solutions that we can learn from and make new materials for ourselves. So, for example, a shark has got dimples on its skin that breaks up the flow of water over its skin, reducing the drag so it uses less energy. And Speedo reckons it can make better swimsuits, making its swimmers go faster using something similar. So should we expect to see Olympic athletes in shark suits? Well, the, the all-in-one body suits that make them look so high-tech now, they are based on what Speedo's learnt from sharks. Now, we can argue whether they actually achieve all that Speedo says or not. Certainly, there doesn't appear to be the change in world records that you might have expected if it really worked. But it's, it's interesting science, nonetheless. I guess in Olympic sports, it's the tenths and hundredths of a second that make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, a tenth or a hundredth of a second is going to mean the difference between a medal. So even if it helps just a little bit, even if you can't quite show it by science, that's going to matter totally to the swimmer. And with daffodils, they've inspired some beautiful paintings, some lovely poetry, but how have they inspired science? Well, daffodils are interesting. Um, when the wind blows, a daffodil doesn't bend over like a, like a tulip might. Instead, it twists and turns its head out of the wind. So it's got this strength in the stem, but it's also inbuilt this type of flexibility that allows it to twist and keep its head up in the wind. But we, we tend to want to do something different. When we build something strong, we want it to be stiff. So that's an example of where nature's done something different because it's got different priorities than we do. And so what do geckos have to do with Spider-Man? Geckos? Geckos are amazing at sticking. They can scurry up the smoothest wall without even a second thought. Uh, and the way they do it is by having hundreds of thousands of tiny hairs on their toes. And these hairs make use of a, of a tiny sticky force called the Van der Waals force. And it's tiny on one hair, but if you add it up over the hundreds of thousands of hairs, it's really sticky. So they can cling to walls like Spider-Man did, uh, but they can hold their weight maybe 50 to 100 times over. It's a remarkable thing. And have we developed the technology based on this effect? We can now make materials uh, that are hairy, much like a gecko's foot. Uh, they are, if you create, say, a plastic film with lots of plastic fibres sticking out of it, and you make them close enough, you can make something that sticks purely through Van der Waals forces. We're not as good as a gecko yet, but uh, we may be able to scale the Empire State Building soon. And also at the festival is extreme scientist Dr Basil Singer. Hi. Hello, hello. How's it going? Very good, thank you. And you? Very good. This is an amazing event this year. You've got so many people here. It's the most packed out I've ever seen it. Carol Vorderman is on form. And what's more, you've got the science of Doctor Who and queues. I can't get in. I'd really like to go and see it. But queues are all the way out the door, around the building and up the block. It's proved to be a massive hit. Well, your own event was on the science of skateboarding and extreme sports, and that also had queues down, pretty much down to the river. And to be honest, it's the only science show I've seen where you had five kids on stage on skateboards. What inspired you to use skateboards to demonstrate physics? Why not, you know? I mean, mechanics essentially can be taught as such a dry subject. It's just the physics of motion. And what better way to use analogies than through extreme sports to try and describe those physics of motions uh, and the dynamics that occurs when you're doing some cool sports. And do you find that people get distracted by the fact that there are skateboards around or do people take the physics in? I'd like to think that the kids take the physics in. I've talked to parents after the event before and the parents have come up to me and said, I don't think you really got this idea across because I was distracted by this and that. And their children have said, what are you talking about? 
Uh, angle of momentum, I totally get it. I totally understand moment of inertia now and why I speed up when I bring my hands in, when I'm spinning. And, and the kids just really do, I hope anyway, relate to what I'm saying. Well, other than snowboarding live on stage and bringing your own snow dome, what do you think you'll do next? What's the next good way to demonstrate physics to kids? Oh, that's a very, very good question. I think I'm going to continue doing this physics of extreme sports lecture because it's a great way to explain mechanics. I'd also like to branch out into sound, music. How does sound travel through the air? How do different instruments make those different sounds? And I could bring in a guitar, do a massive rock riff... Or I could bring him a drums and have a mash away at the drum kit. I think that could be really interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Uh, Dr. Basil Singer, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat and Ben. And we've had a text in from Tony in Bury St Edmunds. He says, why doesn't spinning affect some dancers and circus people? Earlier in the show, we were talking about why do you feel sick if you spin around on an office chair? And I think the answer to that is that they actually use a special technique when they're spinning around. Um, in that if you watch a dancer who's spinning around very fast, they'll flip their head round very quickly. So their head's actually uh, fixing on one point and then flipping around really fast. Apparently, I think, is this called spotting? I mean, this technique, this is what we think it's called. So your your head's actually mostly stationary and you're just kind of flipping around and focusing on one point. So it affects your, your ear system, your vestibular system a bit, a bit less. And we've got a question in here from uh, Gobi who wants to know, why do your fingers wrinkle when exposed to high amounts of water, like when you do the washing up? Well, this is all because of osmosis. Now, what happens is that water will move into your cells. Now, that makes sense if your skin swells up, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for your skin wrinkling. And the reason why you wrinkle, because if you notice, you go in the bath and you don't get wrinkles all over. You get wrinkles on the soles of your feet and on, on your hands, especially your fingers. And this is because you have a layer of protective keratin on there. Now, keratin is a, quite a tough stuff. It's actually what claws and nails and so on are made of. Mm. And because... Because this protective tough layer is there, those cells don't swell up, but the cells underneath them do. Because the ones on top are essentially dead, really, aren't they? Pretty much, yeah. They're just this tough protective stuff, so that they don't really work in the same way as other cells. But because you have this layer and the cells underneath swell up, then the top layer doesn't expand, the bottom layer does, and the only way it can do that is by going all wrinkly. So there you have it. Anyway, some more questions for you. It's time to welcome Diana O'Carroll into the studio to take on our question of the week. So hi, Diana. What have you got for us this week? Hello, Kat. Uh, This week I've got a nautical question. My name's Roy Lightning and I've got a question about the tide times. I often do a lot of walking, so I like to know when the tide is right out because I like to walk out as far as I possibly can. But when I was looking at the tide times, I thought, how do they get it so accurate? It says something like... Wells Bar, low tide, 14.02. The question was really, how did they get it accurate like that? And who needs it that accurate? Because I certainly don't. So we're all used to the idea of the shoreline moving about a bit. But how can something so squidgy and liquidy be so precise? My name is Dr Ken George. I was for many years a principal lecturer in the University of Plymouth in the Institute of Marine Studies. And my principal research topic during those years was that of tides. I'll answer the question how one can predict tides so precisely. And the answer is because they are dependent upon the Sun-Earth-Moon system, which is a system which changes extremely slowly, namely over tens or even hundreds of millions of years, so that in a lifetime there is very little change. Therefore, the tides are the most predictable natural phenomena known on Earth. And indeed, the only thing which is going to stop you predicting tides accurately for, let's say, 100 years' time is silting or dredging of harbours. So this means that we can predict tides years in advance. We can publish tide tables for next year, 2009, and indeed a decade Hence, if we so wish. 
Uh, only about 98% of the energy in the sea level variation is predictable, and the bit which is not predictable is caused by storms. People will be very aware of that. In the last two days, we have had a severe storm striking the south of the UK, and in many places, the tide rose, or the sea level rose, to be more precise, higher than the predicted tide owing to the storm. Why do we need to know tides with such precision? Well, there are two main areas which we're concerned with. One is coastal flooding. How high will tides be predicted? And the second one is for the passage of ships over shallow water, over shoals. It's very important that they know the height of the tide over a shoal so that they have sufficient clearance under the keel. If they have insufficient clearance, then they will scrape the bottom or in the worst case, actually go aground and be stuck. The Earth's relationship to the moon and sun alters so very little that tide times can be predicted with precision. Another interesting point about Norfolk, where Roy is from, is that its coastline makes up the Flemish Bight, where the change in tide is incredibly small because there's not as much water for gravity to move about. Further round the coast, towards King's Lynn, it's a bit more noticeable. And also on our forum, somebody called Turnipsock described how submarines can use tidal movements to drift through the Strait of Gibraltar with their engines off. That's obviously another carbon footprint lowering uh, technique to use. (laughs) And another use of tide timings used by surfers. Now, this is according to the appropriately named Soul Surfer on our forum because he says the best waves come during the rising tide. Great, and uh, thank you for all the other answers we received on that one. Predictable timing is very useful for musical applications too, so we'll be finding out next week. Hi, my name is Archana, and I'm calling from North Carolina, USA. My question is about accents. I've noticed that uh, many people, when they speak in a language that is not their native tongue, usually have strong accents. However, when they try to sing a song in the same language, their accents seem to diminish. There are exceptions, of course, but this appears to be generally true no matter what their native language is or what language they try to sing in. Why is that? And after that, I will definitely be putting the following question to the test. Hi, I'm Simon from uh, Hiroshima in Japan. The question is in two parts. If I'm walking through the desert and I'm slowly becoming dehydrated and I come across a case of wine, uh, obviously with screw caps, and I start drinking it, will it accelerate my dehydration, or will it enable me to survive? And would the lower or higher levels of alcohol make a great difference to the situation? Secondly, if the alcohol in wine is potentially harmful to me in a dehydrated state, could I pour it into a bowl and let the alcohol evaporate? So, do you find yourself imitating other accents when you sing? Or do you think wine in the desert would be a good idea? Send your answers and new questions to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or pour them into our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. The Naked Scientists. Brought to you by thenakedscientists.com. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat and Ben. And now it's time to go back to the festival to find Dave Ansell with this week's Kitchen Science. I'm here towards the end of the Saturday on the Cambridge Science Festival and I've met Naked Scientist Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi there, Ben. So what have you been doing today? I've been helping organise a really big hands-on event called Crash Bank Squelch. And as part of that, I've been doing a whole series of lectures. I went to Crash Bank Squelch earlier and played with a few of the experiments. You can see things like how the body works and there's one where you split water and then explosively recombine it. Really, really good stuff. But what were your lectures about? Well, with a lecture, you can get away with doing all the things which you can't really do within two feet of a small child. So we need some more exciting stuff. I've been doing things with liquid nitrogen, so freezing flowers and smashing them, freezing balloons, blowing the tops off tins, making light bulbs without the glass on them so they burn out really quickly, uh, electrocuting gherkins, all sorts of things. What on earth happens when you electrocute a gherkin? If you electrocute a gherkin, it glows a weird, spooky orange colour. Well, I'm sure we'll have that in a kitchen science coming up. But do you have a kitchen science from the festival for us today? Well, a lovely thing which I've been doing, I've been doing a load of experiments on vacuums. I've got here what I call a vacuum bazooka. Uh, this is quite easy. You can actually do it at home, although be careful if you do, because it can be quite lethal at times. It does sound dangerous. Anything with the word bazooka in, I would generally steer clear of. But I can see that you have a vacuum cleaner and some plumbing pipe. Is this our bazooka? 
That is it indeed. So basically, a perfectly normal vacuum cleaner attached to a long pipe. It wants to be attached near one end of it at sort of right angles to the pipe. So I've done this with plumbing tube, but you could do it by just taping together a couple of pieces of cardboard tube. So you get one long cardboard tube and cut a bit of a hole towards one end, and then you attach another bit at right angles, and that's the bit that you attach the hoover to. Yeah, that's exactly right. It wants to be about the same sort of diameter as the hoover pipe itself. So what we're left with is an extended hoover pipe with a right angle in it at one point. How, how can that be a bazooka? What we're going to do is put a piece of card over the short end and then take a projectile. Uh, you want to make a very light projectile so it doesn't create too much damage when it hits anything. I've got some bubble wrap and wrapped it in insulation tape and put that into the long end of the pipe, hold on to it for a while, turn on the hoover and then let go. So we've made a lightweight projectile here by only using very soft things. So if it does hit anything, it shouldn't do too much damage. Now, what does the card do? The card seals that end. So when you turn the hoover on, it reduces the pressure inside the pipe. And when you put the projectile at the other end, there's less pressure inside the pipe than outside. So air pressure is going to push it down the pipe, accelerate it down really quite fast, and with any luck, knock the card off the end. So the card is there so the vacuum is sucking from just the one end instead of from both ends? Yeah, that's right. And the other end is where we put our projectile? Indeed, um, which should fly across the room with any luck. But surely it's just going to get sucked up the pipe, round the right angle and straight into your hoover. We'll see what happens and see whether your hypothesis is right, Ben. <laughs> OK, well, uh, I guess the next thing to do is turn the hoover on. OK, now, I can see that the card is actually held on, so it is definitely sucking hard enough to hold the card on. And you've got a projectile, and it's, it's nearly the diameter of the tube, so you really want to kind of fill it up. Yeah, basically, you want a, a bit of a seal, a reasonable seal, but not too good a seal, otherwise it won't work, it'll get jammed in the pipe. OK, so again, we, we now have the hoover on, long tube, right angle at one end, the card is held on the end, and Dave's holding the projectile just in the end. So I've just put the projectile in the end, the hoover's working really hard now, and I'm going to let go of the projectile and see what happens. On three, two, one... Wow! Wow! <laughs> that... <laughs> the projectile just blasted the card out of the way and flew across the room. And it must have gone a good 20 feet. Is, is that about right for a vacuum cleaner bazooka? Depends how heavy you make the projectile. That one was just made out of bubble wrap wrapped in tape. If you put a bit of blue tack or plasticine in the middle of that, you might get a bit more range, but it does make it more dangerous, so be very careful. It does seem like it could be pretty much lethal. And this all works from the vacuum cleaner sucking the air in, is that right? Yeah, the vacuum cleaner sucks some of the air out of the pipe, which reduces the pressure inside the pipe, which means there's more air pressure outside of the pipe. Air pressure is really quite large, about 10 tonnes per square metre. Wow, that's a lot. Indeed. So you get about 1.6 kilograms of force on your projectile, shoots down the tube, it only weighs a few grams, so it accelerates down the tube really fast, knocks the card out of the way and flies across the room. And so why doesn't it go down the right-angle bit? It's just going so fast that by the time it gets there... The force pulling it down the right angle bit isn't large enough to make it turn the corner and it carries straight on. So the air pressure is actually what's doing this. This isn't being sucked down the tube by the vacuum, but it's actually being pushed down the tube just by the sheer weight of air that's behind it. Do we use this, the, the phenomenal air pressure in anything else? Well, if you ever drink a drink through a straw... When you suck, you reduce the air pressure inside your mouth, which means the air pressure outside can, will push down on the drink harder than your mouth is pushing out. So it'll push the drink up into your mouth and you can drink. Well, this is a kitchen science that you can do at home if you're very careful because this projectile can come out very quickly. But that's actually all we have time for this week and all we have for Kitchen Science from the Cambridge Science Festival. That does sound pretty impressive, though slightly dangerous. Is it, is it quite dangerous? It could well be, especially if you, if you did do what you shouldn't do and if you put something weighty or hard in there, that really would be a very dangerous thing to do. So I must stress that although it is easy enough to do at home and there's instructions on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, when you do actually test it out, we suggest you do it in your garden and don't aim it at anything breakable or aim it at anyone, which would be far worse. Or your pets or anything No. Like 
no. That would be bad. It would be terrible. Um, but no, we've had a question in from Gobi who asks a simple little question here. Why is urine hot or warm <laughs> <laughs> when you excrete it? Nice. It's because it's been stored in your body, which is that fantastic body temperature of 37 degrees C. So basically it's like keeping something in an incubator. It's nice and warm. Uh, when it comes out, it's still warm because your skin's kind of cooled by the air. It, it feels hot against your skin. If you'll notice this, if you put your hand in and in some water that's actually 37 degrees, it doesn't feel, it, it feels warmer than, than blood heat. Um, so yeah, basically you're storing up something that's warm. Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. There's so much going on at the Science Festival, we could have carried on for ages. If you want to find out more about the Science Festival in Cambridge, you can go to www.cambridgescience.org. And we've also been producing a series of special edition podcasts covering more of the festival events. And you can find those on our website at www.thenakedscientist.com. So all remains to be said is thank you to our production team. That's Mira Senthalingham, Petra Minch. And thanks very much to all our guests this week. We had Keith Sockman, Nikki Buckley and Diana O'Carroll. And we need to say thank you to all the fantastic scientists who've helped to make the Science Festival here so special. We've barely included a handful of them today, but thanks go to everyone at the Department of Pathology, the very glamorous Carol Vorderman, Duncan Law Green and Will Whitehorn from Virgin Galactic, Paul Parsons, Jonathan Wood, Basil Singer and of course our very own Dave Ansell. Now we've got a break for Easter next week but we're going to be back after that with a special live show from Edinburgh. We'll be meeting up with scientists from Scotland and exploring the cutting edge of the science of microbiology. We'll be finding out what scientists are learning from the microscopic world including special magnetic bacteria that could help us to cure cancer. All this, and we'll take on as many of your science questions as you can throw at us. So get them into chris at thenakedscientist.com. Don't forget about our question of the week, too. If you've got a question that needs some special attention, do get in touch by emailing questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. Now, if you'd like to hear the show again, catch up with old shows you've missed, you can download all the podcasts from the archive at www.thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts. So have a great week and goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Today in Focus is the daily news podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, every weekday as I bring you stories from across the UK and around the world. We'll take you to the front line of the climate emergency. The smoke smells like everything is on fire. Behind the scenes in Westminster. We're in the sort of political Wild West. And we'll cover the latest trends in technology and popular culture. TikTok, TikTok, buzz, buzz, buzz. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.